Romans chapter 13. We're looking at only three verses today, verse 8 through verse 10. And that reads, can you please stand with me actually as we read? It says this, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments you shall not murder, I'm sorry, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. I'm going to preach you this morning under the title, My Obligation or Our Obligation to Love obligation to love. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you help us as we study this word, as we come into this text, and as we understand what it means to love. Help us to know that we have a debt that can never be paid off, the debt of love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. In the year 130 A.D., there was a letter written by an unknown author to a man named Diognetus. And in the letter, this man is writing to Diognetus, who's, it's a Greek name, probably somebody in the Roman Empire who is trying to understand who these Christians are probably a pagan. And the author is writing to this individual trying to explain who these Christians are. Who are these people that are following Jesus Christ? And what he says about them, I think is just eye-opening and helps to shape us as we understand this passage and as we understand what it means to be the followers of Jesus. This is what he says. Of these Christians. He says, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign land to them is as their own native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers, which means wherever they end up, they live there as citizens. But it's as if they're not from anywhere. It's almost as if they're citizens of two different places, this world and the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to try to explain these Christians. He says, they marry, as do others, they beget children, but, this is interesting, this is different in their day and age, they do not destroy their offspring. They don't kill their kids, meaning they love life at every stage. This next line is fascinating. He says, they have a common table, but not a common bed. I remember hearing Tim Keller once expound on that. He says, they they share their food with all, but they share their bed with none, which was the opposite in the Roman culture, where they would share their bed with all, and they were stingy with their refrigerators. 
They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws at the time, uh, uh, surpass, uh, at the same time they surpass the laws in their lives, which means they don't just do the law, they do, they do more. They're better. They love all, yet they're persecuted by all. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute, yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are reviled, and yet they bless. And when they do good, they are punished as evildoers, undergoing punishment, and they rejoice because through this they are brought to life. I want you to notice how the early church was known by their love. If I could summarize everything that I just read, it is this. It is love. Love. Not just any love. Love like Jesus kind of love. Now, this is written in 130 A.D., 100 years or so after Jesus died. 100 years later. Somebody once said this. They, they, they said, uh, uh, the further you are from the source, the less like you like. Let me read that again. The further you are from the source, the less likely you are to exhibit their character traits. What they're talking about is, you know, if you have a, like a leader, let's say, who was a popular leader uh, 100 years ago? Uh, 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 I don't know, was Teddy Roosevelt? Was that Churchill? There you go, Churchill. Um, let's say Churchill had some guys around him, all right? And they, his, his little minions, if you would, displayed in that first generation his character traits. You see this with like powerful leaders, don't you? Their followers kind of display their characteristics. Let's just say, though, 100 years later, uh, we can still kind of trace some sort of followers of Churchill. How much are they displaying the actual characteristics of Churchill 100 years later? Very little is the answer. And that's this, this idea that the further you get from the source of an individual, the less likely you are to exhibit their character traits. Meaning those... Let's go back 2,000 years, all right? 2,000 years ago, those who were the minions of Caesar displayed his character trait for maybe a generation, maybe two. But I doubt 2,000 years ago we could find people who display the very character traits of Caesar. Church, millions of people over the last 2,000, billions, millions of people alive today over the... 2,000 years later, who still display the character traits of Jesus Christ. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And that leads us this morning to our conversation on these three verses on the topic of love. Are you with me? Verse 8, look at it. What's the first word? Oh, oh, oh. We're coming off of verse 7. Pay all that you owe. Pay the taxes to whom taxes are owed. Pay the revenue you owe. Give respect to those who, uh, who are owed respect. Honor to those whom it is owed. Oh, oh, oh. O-W-E. What do you owe? All right? He's, he's going now from verse 7 into this topic of love, and he says, let's talk about what we owe. Owe nobody anything 
except to love each other. Now, some have used verse 8 as a prohibition against borrowing. They would look at this and they would say, see, you should not owe anybody anything, therefore you should not borrow. But that doesn't make sense with the passage because the very previous verse, verse 7, says pay what is owed. If you owe something, that means you've borrowed something. And if somebody has lent you something, that, that means that Christians are allowed to borrow. So what's, what's prohibited is not borrowing. What's prohibited is to not pay back what you borrowed, all right? And this is truly countercultural in, in a world today where, you know, somebody says, hey, can I hold $20? And you know what that means. I remember, so I've been in Baltimore for 15 years. When I first moved here, somebody said, hey, could I hold $10? And I was like, you just want to hold it? <laughs> like, I mean, you, could, you can hold it. <laughs> but what I learned was that means uh, I'm, I'm going to, Keep it. I'm going to tell you I'll pay you back. You know, Listen, if you pay your $20 back, that's wild today. Like nobody does that. Christians are required to pay back what is owed. If you owe somebody $20 this morning, make it right. I'm telling you. That's part of Christian, the ethic of love. We pay what is owed owed, and you are not acting like a Christian if you don't pay back what you owe. So what he's saying is, is what we're prohibited from is, 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 is theft. It's saying I'm going to pay you back, but I don't. That's called theft. So we're not allowed to steal. And so instead of uh, stealing, instead of living this life of owing, people and then avoiding them, which by the way, when you owe somebody, what do you do? You don't love them. You avoid them. You don't talk to them because you don't have the money, (laughs) right? See the problem? It all goes together. Anyway, instead of that, uh, uh, we pay back and we owe. What do we owe? The only debt we are to have toward one another is the debt of love. Leon Morris put it like this. He says, love is a permanent obligation impossible to discharge meaning we are never done paying off our debt of love to one another. This is beautiful, it's poetic, it's well stated, but it's more than just beauty. What Paul goes on to say is this actually is a summary of the law of God. This is how we obey God. What does God require of us? The answer is love. What is, it, what is the will of God for my life? The answer is to love others. What is my purpose in this life? The answer is to love others. So verse 8, the, the law then is fulfilled as we love. Verse 9 and 10 gives an explanation for that. We'll look at that. Verse 10 summarizes, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So here's the big kind of picture this morning. How do we obey God? Answer, love. love. Thank you. We practice loving others. That's how we obey God. And we want to obey God. Like in theory, sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? 
Like I think probably even a lot of non-Christians in theory like the idea of obeying this entity who might be known as God. We want, and as Christians, we certainly want to obey God. But here's the challenge is it's hard, isn't it? I mean, maybe some of you are newer Christians and you're like, do this, don't do this. Like, I've got to change every aspect about me. Like, now they're telling me I've got to pay the $20 back <laughs> that I borrowed. Like, there's just so many commands and things that I've got to do. And then when you actually think about the text and you, you, you read the scriptures and you see all of these commands, uh, commands around purity, don't have uh, uh, sexual immorality, you know, don't have sex with those that you're not married to, don't pursue same-sex attractions, uh, uh, don't, uh, 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 don't, don't leave your spouse, uh, laws that are around uh, partnership with the, the wicked, uh, for instance, Honor the emperor, but don't be in partnership with the wicked. Don't be unequally yoked, but pay your taxes. Laws around our church life together. Gather together on Sundays for church. Uh, love one another. All of the one another's in Scripture that we're required to live out with each other. Uh, our personal life. Commands around a personal life, like work a job so you can provide for yourself and for your kids. That's part of obedience to God. Uh, or something like we're talking about here, paying off your debts. Or don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And for some, you're, especially those of you that are newer to the faith, you're like, oh my goodness, this is too much. Like, how do I memorize all of these things that I'm supposed to do and things that I'm not supposed to do? I remember one new believer that I was discipling some time ago. Uh, this individual had given up sexual immorality, acts of sexual immorality with physical people. And this individual was proud of the fact that they had substituted that with looking at pornography. And I was like, actually, that's called lust. You're, you're participating in something, you know, and so we fight then against even lust of the mind. And they were like, they're like, are you serious? Like, I'll never get this right. Like, as we peel back layers, and those of us that have been Christians for longer, uh, you know, we peel back layers and we see sin issues that we just never knew existed. And it feels so hard to get it right. Yet Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, meaning Jesus himself said, it's easy to follow me. My commands are light. So how do we, here's my question, how do we reconcile this? The hard reality of obedience to God and the fact that Jesus said, it's easy to follow me. How do we obey God? Now, if we don't understand this, I believe that we will end up in one of two extremes. The first extreme is that of the legalist. Legalist is a person who, they, their worldview is the law, legalist, legalism, all right? Their worldview is surrounded by doing the right thing. The legalist says, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And legalism, Let me, I'm going I'm to hold off. I was going to say something about it. I'm going to hold off. The other extreme is lawlessness or licentiousness, which is to say, 
I'm saved by grace. I don't need to worry about the law. I'm going to do whatever I feel like doing. Now, here's the thing. Both of these extremes are not Christian. They're not Christian. They're not biblical. You have false perversions of Christianity in both of those categories, but neither of those are Christian. So what's the Christian's response then to obedience, and how do we then not fall into one of these two categories, but effectively obey God? Answer. I bet you can guess it at this point. Love. Love. How does love fulfill obedience? Let me give you two headings for this text, two big headings. The first one is this, love simplifies obedience. And the second is, is this, love directs obedience. First, love simplifies obedience. Before I get back into the text, let me give you an analogy of what I'm saying here. I do weddings as a pastor. It's one of my favorite things, actually, as a pastor. I love doing weddings, seeing two people come together. It's beautiful. Um, I do a lot of weddings. When I do the wedding, you know, imagine I'm looking at the groom and I'm instructing the groom. There's a lot of things that he's going to have to do in this marriage. All right? So I could say, like, let me give you a thousand commands. And I'm going to have a two-hour-long lecture during this wedding. I'm going to give you a thousand commands of, you know, when your wife is sick, bring her some, bring her some uh, chicken noodle soup. Uh, when the house is messy, just pick it up, you know. Um, uh, when, when your wife leaves stuff all over the, uh, uh, the, the ironing board, just take it off neatly and set it on the floor like I did this morning. You know, all of these little actions of love. So I can talk through all of these commands, or I could say this, and this is what I say in a wedding. Love her. Love her. Husband, and this is how the Bible says in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. He repeats it four times. Love, love, love. Here's my point. When the husband knows that he's to love his wife, like, he doesn't have to try to write down all of the commands and remember them all, you know? As if, like, oh, I brought her food, and so I can check off that box. No, it's not just the, it's not just the law, it's love. So when, so when we tell, tell the man, love her, we're simplifying all that it means. We're simplifying all of these acts of obedience, Love simplifies obedience to God as well. So look at verse 8. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, the first thing that we see here is that love redefines every relationship. Who is it that we're called to love? Is it just each other or is it all people? He actually mentions both in verse 8. He starts off by saying, love each other. And that is a reciprocal, the, the, the word in the original language means reciprocal kinds of relationships, people that are similar to you. He's referring there to Christians. So, oh, no one anything except to love one another as Christians. Our church covenant says, we will walk together in Christ-like love, exercise in affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, that's us, in the garden church, and faithfully strengthen one another. 
which means that we love a, you know, the, a countercultural kind of love for each other, that it even includes watchfulness. If somebody's falling away, our love for that person is to bring them back. Church Covenant goes on to say, we weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. So each other is to say Christians. But then he goes on uh, to, to say, to use a different word, which means people that are not like you, people of a different state, people of a different class. And that word here in the ESV is translated another. He goes on in verse 8, for the one who loves another fulfills the law. So if I could paraphrase this, owe nobody anything except to love your fellow believers, church. And here's the reason. It's because the one who loves everybody, including people that are not like us, is the one who has fulfilled the law. That's what verse 8 is telling us. We love, then, all people. This directs who we're loving. It's everybody, not just in the church, but those outside of the church. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and 10 talks about God's love for us, and this is the famous passage which tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul Barnett summarizes those verses by saying this. He says, God loves those, then, who were morally weak, godless, sinners, and even hostile toward him. And so then we're to love who? What kinds of people? Those who are morally weak, godless, sinners, and those who are even hostile to us. Which means when somebody says something to you that is hurtful, it doesn't squash your obligation to love them. Which means when somebody is lying to you, it doesn't revoke God's call on your life to love them. And even when you don't know somebody and they're what we call a stranger, they're still your neighbor. When we think about even our own community, you know, there's 10,000 plus people in this neighborhood. I doubt we know most of them. I doubt most of them even know we exist. Think about this. We're called to love everybody we come across. And there is incredible need in this community. Kids need our love. They need our mentorship. They need people to come alongside them. There's some people in this community that are lonely and just need a friend. There are some older folks in this community who have been put in some of these buildings or who live, I shouldn't say put, but I, I said it intentionally. They live in some of these buildings and in the minds of many, they've been put there to just spend the rest of their lives, and they're lonely, you know? And we are called to love everybody. Like, what would it look like if a church effectively made an impact, a love impact, in one neighborhood in Baltimore, and how might that extend and, and bless the greater city? We love, we love absolutely everybody. You know, some people say, well, you know, I can't live in that neighborhood because it's dangerous, I like John Perkins' response to that, those kinds of questions. He says, is, is the neighborhood dangerous? He says, sounds like the kind of place where Christians should move to. I can't live there because the schools are bad. Perkins' response, 
Sounds like the kind of place where Christians should live and remain. Meaning for every reason the world gives as to why we should not love a certain person or individual, that's what draws Christians. We love everybody, church. That's the point. We have an unending obligation to love everybody. C.S. Lewis then put it like this, and this is helpful for you. He says, don't waste your time now bothering to figure out out whether or not you love your neighbor. He says, just act like you love them. And he said, he goes on to say, this is one of the great secrets of love. When you act like you love somebody, you start to love them. Lewis says this also happens in the reverse. If you're violent towards somebody, you'll find that you dislike them. So what do we do then? What's our application here? Let's act like, even if you don't feel it, act like you love people. Act like you love them and serve and meet needs and sit with and do everything that love love requires of you. So Christians cannot be picky with our love. Christians cannot be stingy with our love. How does this simplify obedience? How does it simplify obedience? Well, love redefines every relationship. Let me give you another little word here. Love regards every command. So if we continue in verse 8, or verse 9, he gives another four. Now four, the word four for Paul is a grounding word. He uses it all the time. So verse 8 says, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Oh, nobody any, anything. Let me give you the explanation for that. It's because that's how you fulfill the law. And then he says in verse 9, for let me give you the explanation for how, how love fulfills the law. And so verse 9 goes on, he says, for the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Those are three of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder the Sixth Commandment, you shall not, uh, shall not steal. What's that, the Ninth Commandment? Uh, you shall not covet, that's the Tenth Commandment. Um, eighth Commandment is steal, I believe. The point is, these are three just examples Because then he goes on to say, and any other commandment, meaning all of them, are summed up. Somebody say, summed up. In this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, as assumes that you love yourself. Because one of the common responses I've heard is, well, what if I don't love myself? The Bible assumes you do. Here's the point, all right? You do love yourself. What you call self-hatred is pride because you love your ego so much. Uh, One commentary I read, I forget which one it was, they quote, uh, I think it was Tom Schreiner, he quotes Blaise Pascal, who was an old philosopher and mathematician. And Pascal said, even people who commit suicide, something as tragic as suicide, is actually a perverse kind of self-love. Because what that person is saying is, is I will be happier dead than alive. And so we're acting for self, you know, and it's perverse. That's not true. That's not good. That's not a good way to love yourself. But the point is, is the Bible assumes that you do love yourself, that you care for your own needs, that you, that you seek out yourself uh, 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 to care for. Love others. Love others. As 
you love yourself. So he's pulling here from a story in Matthew 22 where Jesus is interacting with some scribes and Pharisees. And the scribes and Pharisees are silenced. They're dumbfounded. They don't have any comeback for Jesus. They don't know what else to say. And the one of them has this bright idea, and he's going to try to stump Jesus with this question. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in all of the law? Now, I was, I was over on the east side earlier this week, and I was part of a little very heated conversation on who the greatest basketball player was ever, Kobe, Jordan, uh, or LeBron, you know. So, of course, we all know that it's LeBron. And, I mean, it was heated, all right? The conversation was heated. And, um, you know, take that conversation back 2,000 years. They were having, they were having debates that were that heated, that you know, everybody knew these debates, and one of them was this. What's the greatest, not basketball player, what's the greatest command in the law? That was one of the common debates of their day. And so they're throwing it at, at Jesus, and by the way, in the law, there's 613 laws, 248 commands, 365 prohibitions. You know, which one is the greatest, Jesus? And it's kind of a trick question. This is why they debated it so much. Because if you said murder, don't murder. Well, now what you're doing is you're making light of coveting. If you say don't covet, you're making light of theft. So what Jesus answers, he says the greatest command is two, actually. He says the first one is this. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.5, love God. And then the second one is like it. Now he quotes Leviticus 19.18. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus goes on to say, all of the law... And the prophets hang on these two commandments. And it was a brilliant answer to the scribe. Verse 9, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul even takes it a step further. Not only does all of the law and commandments hang on, on this, this command to love, but he says the command to love, look at the text, he says it sums up the law. That's, that's a big statement. Meaning if somebody were to say to you, like, hey, sum up the entire law of God in the Old Testament. A summary of the law, Paul would say, is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not only genius. It's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what it does for us is it simplifies all obedience. How do we sum up what God requires of us? How do we sum up what we ought to, how we ought to live in this world? Answer, love your neighbor as yourself. A new believer may not know some things. You know, they might not know that, uh, that they should not get drunk or ought to gather with the church. Uh, but there's something about the ethic of love that instructs them even without hearing these commands. They know that it's unloving, unloving to do this or to not do that. And so when they begin to act with love, 
And this is the doctrine of regeneration. This, is, this says that the Holy Spirit has changed us and has given us a desire to love other people. When we act with that desire, we actually begin to obey God. So quick points of application. Number one, act in love. Should I or shouldn't I? The question is, what is love? How do I, how do I act with love in this situation? You know, Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, than the one who lays down his life. So it's not just, love does not stop with giving $5 to somebody in need. Love is to die for that individual. It's to give our life for that individual. Act in love. Also, do no wrong is another application point. And this is what he says in verse, verse 10. He says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. I wonder, kids in the room, what is the golden rule? Does anybody know? That was something, I had a little book called The Golden Rule when I was growing up. I see adults know it. All right, golden rule typically is do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. You can reverse that as well. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. That's kind of what he's saying here. You know, it's, it's not either or, it's both and. Love does what is good and right, and love does not do harm. Love does not do wrong to another. Third point of application, learn true love. Learn what it means to truly love. This takes wisdom and thought, and this takes a biblical worldview. This takes being in your word. Meaning not everything that feels like love actually is love. You know, think of the early church. They shared their bed with none. For some who share their bed with all, that might feel in the moment like love. But it's not true love. And so true love is to be stingy in some areas of life in order to follow God and to be generous. And what is true love? This also helps us, not just through clear sin issues, but it also helps us navigate the gray areas of life. So, for example, uh, just this past week, I'm working on my sermon. I've got to get this done, and my son Chapman wants to play with me. And I know you kids like to play with your parents, right? Chapman wants to play with me, and I have to make a decision. Am I going to keep working on my sermon, or am I going to play with my five-year-old? So what do I do? I stopped, and I played with him for 30 minutes. And then at some point, I said, Chapman, I have to get back to my work. What was loving there? You see, some would say, well, if, if your five-year-old wants to play with you, you should just play with them constantly. But you see, sometimes, to truly love my five-year-old, I have to go to work. You see what I'm saying? Like, you're away from those that you love the most, sometimes the majority of the day. But that doesn't mean that that's disconnected from your love. You know, it doesn't mean that dropping your kid off at school and seeing their tears and making them go in means that you don't love them. We have to learn what it means to truly love each other. Yeah. And this takes wisdom. If, if, if you're facing a decision, is it sinful, then don't do it. But if it's not sinful, does your conscience allow it? If it doesn't, don't do it. Have you ever seen this before? It's a meme. I'm walking you through a meme right now. <laughs> and if it's not sinful and your conscience allows it, the next question is this, what's the most loving thing to do? 
How do I most love in this situation? All right, second big heading, and we're kind of going a little late here because we got started late, but I'm almost done. Love directs obedience. Second big heading. So love first simplifies obedience. Secondly, love directs obedience. Here's what I mean by that. Love removes all legalism, and it directs our true obedience. Licentiousness and lawlessness is problematic. Just living however you want to live is wrong and problematic, but just as problematic is legalism, which is harsh rule following disconnected from love. You know, think of the legalists of Jesus' day. They tithed even their mint, and they tithed even, uh, even their, their cumin. Yet they neglected the weightier matters of justice. You know, they would come up to their mother, and their mother would have a need, and they would say, oh, I've actually already consecrated all of my money to the, to, to the temple. Sorry, I can't help you. And he's saying, you're missing it. Yeah. You're following, you know, I, I go to my little small group meeting, and therefore I check off that box, and I don't have to love people the rest of the week. I go to church on Sundays. Why do I have to love them on Monday? I did my duty. That's what the legalist says. You know, I gave my 10% or whatever percentage you choose to give to the church. I gave it, and why do I also have to open my home or, or, or uh, uh, love the poor or extend myself in other ways? I did my basic duty. You see, legalism says, what's the bare minimum, and how can I check off the box? But all of that is disconnected from love. And so then love directs our true obedience to God. Love also reveals every believer. It reveals us. So look how verse 10 closes. He says, therefore, as he sums it all up, Love fulfills the law. Love fulfills the law. Paul is not anti-law. Paul is not saying we don't have any. He's saying that when we love each other, we are fulfilling the law. Going back to Romans chapter 8, verse 4, Paul has explained that the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So he's already made this case for the fact that as we are regenerated human beings, sinners saved by grace, now saints, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, we now walk according to the Spirit, and the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us. And so we're given them this new law of love. And as we love, what he's saying is that, is that the very intent of the law is fulfilled in our actions. In other words, love displays who belongs to Jesus. Beloved, let us love each other, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, for God is love. But he that does not love, does not know God, for God is love. See, if love does not characterize your life, it's possible that you have never been born again. 
you're like a wind-up car. Chapman has this little car that you pull out this thing and it you know, goes across the floor. This quick bolt, burst of energy. And some folks, they have to find ways to get that quick burst of energy. You know, they go to church and they get this little burst of energy. They do something loving, but five seconds later it's gone. And love is not characterizing their life. Why? It's because they don't have an engine in them. There's no motor of love. You see, the truly regenerate person is not just like a little kind of toy, but rather we, we've been given a new engine. It's our new way of life. It's how we think. It's how we live. How are you born again? Listen, you're not born again by loving. Don't think you're going to go from here and do better loving and become yourself a Christian. You're born again through looking to him who loved you. You're born again through looking to him who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, came down and died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. You see, to whom much is given, much is required. When we, when we know true love, when we really know the gospel, we really know what it means to be loved by God, forgiven of our sins, then we love we have now a debt of love that can never be repaid. We have an obligation to love, and we are changed by the Spirit of God. But what was it that compelled God to love us? Meaning, what did we do for God that would require God to love us? Nothing. Nothing. In the gospel, Jesus is not responding to our love. God does not have a debt of love. God has no obligation to love. While we respond to God's love, God does not respond to ours in that way. He didn't love us because we first loved him. Jesus, don't forget, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Meaning nobody made God God. Nobody made Jesus Lord, as some of the old heresies said, that the early church made Jesus Lord. No, nobody made Jesus the Savior. Nobody made Jesus God. Jesus is Lord. He is the Savior. He is God. And so therefore, there's no obligation from God through Christ to love us. And so therefore, his love is unique. Our love is a reciprocal kind of love where we get loved by a greater being and in return, we, we, we respond with love. But God's love is not a responsive kind of love in that sense. God is responsive in his love, in the sense that the Father eternally loved the Son, and the Son eternally loved the Spirit, and the Spirit eternally loved the Father. We are made in God's image. We're made to respond to God's love. But, but God's love is all contained within the Godhead, acted upon by no one, owing nobody love outside of himself. And so when we understand that God loved us, what we're saying is that this is a one-way kind of love. 
He loved us even when he did not have to. Oh, I want you to know God's love so that you will love him and love others. He loved us before creation. And he will love us for all of eternity. He loved us while he knit you together in your mother's womb. And he will love you until your dying breath. He loved you as a baby and he will love you in the grave. He loved us, church, while we were a sinner. And he loves us as a saint. He loved us while we were morally weak. And he loves us as we grow in our maturity. He loved us while we were godless. And he loves us in Christ. He loved us when we were hostile toward him. And he loved us, loved us as he came to us and as we came to him. He loved us, church, as he sent his only son. And he loves us as the son sends the spirit. He loved us as he walked that hill of Calvary. And he loves us today as he forgives all of our sins and cleanses us of all of our unrighteousness. He loved us as he took the nails in his hands and in his feet. And he loves us as his blood still speaks a better word. He loved us, church, as he breathed his last. And he loves us as he breathes life into us. And he loved us as the stone was rolled away. And he will love us on that day he returns to make all things new. He loved us. He loves us. And he will love us. Yes. Now this is love, that a man lay down his life for another. We love God because God finished it for me. First loved us, and we could turn that. We love others because he first loved us. Why did he do it? Oh, we stand in awe of him, church. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die. Would he devote that sacred head for a sinner, a worm such as I? But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Amen. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith, by grace, I received my sight. And now, I'm happy all the day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ. We thank you for loving us first so that we might love you and love others. God, let us be the kind of church that is transformed by this ethic of love and help us to obey you through love. It's in Jesus' name, amen.